Welcome to another episode of the Epistemic Unruliness stream of the Always Already podcast. This is your host, James, here today with a, a really interesting conversation um, that um, we're going to have with Jason Ortiz, who is a grassroots organizer and activist and involved in several different um, campaigns. But he's here today to talk to uh, us about um, the, the Enrique Renuncia protests or uprising that has taken place in Puerto Rico. Over the last couple of weeks, um, in July of 2019 here, um, and to have a longer extended conversation about Puerto Rican colonial um, relationship with the United States and with Puerto Rican forms of protest um, using dance in the streets, um, reggaeton and, and, and trap. Uh, trap reggaeton music and perreo dance um, as part of a, a grassroots po popular mobilization um, against the governor and against uh, forms of corruption um, that are associated and emblematic of the United States and neoliberal colonial austerity measures. Um, so I think this uh, this is a conversation that's been long overdue on this podcast. Um, I wanted to have a conversation about Puerto Rico for a while, and I wanted to have Jason Ortiz on to be the person to have that conversation. Um, and so, uh, unfortunately, well, I guess in this case, it's a it's a it's a good thing in that this protest was successful, and that the governor announced his um, resignation. Um, but all of the conflicts and things that have been necessary to bring about this kind of a grassroots swell, uh, those are unfortunate things. Um, but it has taken this event now, um, Ricky Renuncia, um, to finally have this long overdue conversation. Um, and of course, when you're having a conversation that you are calling long overdue and you keep setting it up and drawing it out and not just going into the conversation but staying very meta about it on the edges here, um, you only hold that up even more. So I suppose I should kayate, kayame. Um, let me stop talking and we'll go to a break. And when we come back, we'll have Jason Ortiz. All right, and we are back. With our guest today, I'm joined by Jason Ortiz, or joined with Jason Ortiz. I don't know what the right preposition is there, uh, but who cares? Jason, you are the president of the Connecticut um, Puerto Rican Agenda, and you are also involved with the Cannabis Minority, is it Commission? The Minority Cannabis Business Association. There you go. Let me let you introduce yourself properly. <laughs> Absolutely. So my name is Jason Ortiz. I am the president of the Connecticut Puerto Rican Agenda, which is a grassroots organization here in Connecticut, where I'm based, Hartford, Connecticut, uh, statewide, that we seek to organize, mobilize, and agitate Puerto Ricans for justice for Puerto Rico. And so it's a pretty broad charge of what we're trying to do, but it came out of a desire to address issues related to PROMESA, which was a piece of legislation that 
Uh, it was one of the most anti-democratic pieces of legislation ever passed in Congress that put a fiscal control board uh, to determine the fate of the financial institutions of the nation of Puerto Rico. Uh, and so already being a colony and then also having a fiscal control board on top of that uh, has really created a crisis on the island, an economic crisis, a political crisis that we're seeing erupts with uh, Ricky Rosario's uh, resignation, which is scheduled for tomorrow. We'll see if it actually goes. Uh, but that's where we're at right now. Okay. Uh, with the Minority Cannabis Business Association, I am the vice president. And so in that role, we seek to get more communities of color, including Puerto Rican communities, into the cannabis industry as owners, as operators, and as consumers. And so we have a lot of work to do to undo the damage done by the war on drugs. I myself was impacted and arrested uh, when I was in high school. And so I, I work with both organizations, you know, both do amazing work. And I've actually seen that a lot of the work is starting to collide and the cannabis industry can do a lot for the economy and the mental and physical health of the people of the island. So I'm excited to be doing both of those things. Uh, but here today, we're talking about Puerto Rico specifically uh, and all that has come about in the last few weeks. Yeah, there's so many things that uh, you and I could talk about, Jason. And um, I'll just say, actually, you and I have known each other for several years now. I mean, maybe like seven. <laughs> We're getting old, man. It's, yeah, actually, putting numbers on that is crazy. But I met you through cannabis, drug war, public health, activism, you know, um, you know, and, uh, different harm reduction strategies and approaches mm -hmm. and things. And so it's, it's really cool. And, and, you know, I always gravitated towards in those spaces, other black and brown people and mm -hmm. finding other Puerto Ricans um, like yourself and other Latinx people in those spaces was always cool for me. And so like that immediately we hit it off. <laughs> and so being able to have you on, I've been wanting to have you on uh, to talk about Puerto Rico for uh, several years now since some of the situation, you know, leading up to Promesa was starting to mm -hmm. unfold. And we'll get into some of that um, here as we go along a bit. But yeah, over the last two weeks, three weeks, right, a lot mm -hmm. of different historical, you know, the trajectories have come to a head mm -hmm. um, in the, the, the Ricky Reynosia protest uprisings. Um, and so... For people who, and you said, this, so tomorrow is August 2nd. This is August 1st where we're doing this recording. And for people who have like been living literally in a, well, you know what? It's easy in the United States and, and like in El Norte here to not know what's happening in Puerto Rico. Uh, I'll be honest. So maybe people don't know. I don't know what's but, happening in their neighborhoods here in the States. We've been so compartmentalized. And so I understand that folks, you know, may not know. Uh, the situation on the island, but you know, at this point, it's getting some pretty big headlines. Jason, can you uh, yeah, and that it, it managed to make headlines even in the midst of you know various trumparia things <laughs> that have been going on. What this might tie in because I want to mention the AOC "Go Back Where You're From" comment mm -hmm. as like taking place while all this is going on. But what was Ricky Nuncia? So Ricky Renuncia was a campaign by the Puerto Rican people in the broadest sense possible, like a very leaderless movement or leaderful movement, I should say, um, where Ricky Rosello, who is the current governor, is supposed to leave tomorrow on August 2nd. He is the son of a previous governor, another Rosello, 
who was a big part of increasing and creating the debt crisis that we're dealing with today. Uh, but he is the current governor elected through the Bennett Band, the progressive party, the new progressive party uh, on the island, who is also the statehood party. Um, and after Hurricane Maria, he had he did a terrible job taking care of the island. Um, and so he was not exactly a popular governor from from his response to Hurricane Maria. And then most recently, there was a leak of 900 chat messages that him and his administration had shared that had all kinds of horrible things, um, very sexist, very homophobic, directly making fun of Ricky Martin, which was a mistake. It was we see definitely now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so, you know, but also, you know, some of his political opponents and, you know, joking about them dying and being murdered. But I think the big piece that also was like the last straw for folks is that he mocked the death of people that had to deal with their burying their families and having to deal with their families death after Maria. You know, he was he was making jokes about it. And so it also wasn't just him in the chats, right? Like those chats were his entire administration. And so there's a number of other uh, officials that also said some pretty incredible and downright illegal, right? Like they were admitting to illegal activity when it came to contracts, when it came to cover-ups. But there was even one um, uh, Miranda who was caught, you know, saying, oh, I've seen the future and it's beautiful. There are no Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico. And, you know, whether he was joking or not, that, you know, was a a bridge too far for even their own party to accept. And the island erupted in asking for Ricky to resign. And renuncia is Spanish for resign. Yeah, this is so like this is like this story is so very like of our times in some way, right? Because it, mm-hmm. it starts in this internet expose of mm-hmm. of social media, instant messenger, screenshots <laughs> and things, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and in a in a way, and you kind of mentioned, you know, the the Hurricane Maria fallout and and Rosario's terrible job handling the the the, the crisis following the hurricane and like leaning up before it. But mirroring that alongside how Donald Trump had, he, you know, Trump's administration was actually rosy with the Rosello administration following mm-hmm. Maria. And there's a lot of like the, the kind of dynamics of these, like the, 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 the leaking chats that reveal this kind of machismo, mm-hmm. homophobic, misogynistic, corrupt culture is a mirror image of what's been going on, I think, with Donald Trump. And in a lot of ways, you know, you can pick off, this is like all of those dynamics are funneled into this small and localized case. Again, though, right? mm-hmm. Puerto Rico becoming this microcosm for like everything um, that's going on and, and, and like people's anger with corruption, anger with politicians who don't even like pretend to give a damn about mm-hmm. the public good or whatever that might be at all anymore. And so I want to like call out some of the names of these investigative journalists who were behind that. Cause like props to them, um, Laura Moscoso, Luis Valentin Ortiz and Carla Minette with the Centro de Periodismo Investigativo. Mm-hmm. Um, on July 13th, they dropped that leak. And so from that date, the protest escalated for about two weeks and they were Things going on during that time period, and I think maybe later in this conversation, we can come back to, like, opening up what was going on as far as Ricky Martin being called out and involving himself and other, you know, reggaetoneros and other Puerto Rican stars joining the protest, issues of police violence that took place 
um, in San Juan. And then um, the Perreo Combativo, which is like... <laughs> which is my favorite you know, part of this whole story. Basically, it's like, basically like twerking on, you know, <laughs> reggaeton, twerk dancing, <laughs> yeah. like, twerk, twerk dancing on the steps of the cathedral of San Juan. <laughs> Which it, it was the final tactic before he announced he resigns. You like, know? The, the Perero Combativo was like what broke him. And so I <laughs> wanted to make sure, like in the, the history books, they include that what broke him was reggaeton in front of a church. <laughs> I love it. I love, you know, it's like, it's, it's a, yeah, this is like it, to write this narrative. And like, there's more to it. Obviously, like tomorrow we'll, we'll see if this, like, how this keeps developing, right? But like, just mm-hmm. that story up to that point really does have a satisfying yeah. kind of hook. But yeah. like, all right, let, let's back mm-hmm. all the way, all the way up. Um, <laughs> I, I told you before that I wanted to start with the Spanish-American War of 1898, but you, you, I, and then I thought to myself that I would start maybe a little earlier with the Grito de Lares, mm-hmm. which is from like, I think the 1860s, which is like yeah. the first anti-colonial uprising against the Spanish that's not, Counting fugitive slave like Maroons, like you know, they're also anti-colonial uprisers. But you got one even earlier. <laughs> That's right. So you know, my family is from a little town called Aniasco, Puerto Rico, which is on the west side of the island. It's pretty close to a bigger town called Mayaues, uh that folks may have gone to see there. Um, but you know, growing up, I would go see my family every summer. You know, see my sister actually grew up on the island, so she was born in the states but lived her whole life on the island. So we've always had this sort of split identity. Uh, my parents, my dad was born here, my mom was born there. So we always kind of go back and forth, but there's little plazas in all these old Spanish towns um, and every single one that usually has, you know, a place to buy ice cream and you know, things like that, but also some statues. And I noticed that there was a statue in my hometown of three Taino natives drowning a Spaniard, right? And so it's a very uh, aggressive statue. I never seen anything like it. Very subtle, very subtle. Yeah, very subtle, right? And so it's a statue commemorating the story of Salcedo, uh, which is a a story that has gone on for a long time. Um, You know, and I didn't know exactly what it meant when I was little, but when I got older, you know, it all started to click. And really now it's a big part of who I feel as a Puerto Rican, my identity is. And so this story, you know, the short version is, there were a number of caciques, which are chieftains of the local area. Um, and when the Spaniards had come, they kind of approached the situation differently. Some were very cautious and did not want to um, cooperate with the Spanish. Some thought they were gods and wanted to honor them. Um, and there was other folks that thought that maybe they were evil and that we should be defending ourselves from them. And, you know, a lot of the caciques started out very uh, peacefully. Uh, and were murdered and enslaved for that peaceful proposition. And so uh, Aguebaña was the cacique from Añasco. That was the father. And then there was Aguebaña El Bravo, which is his son, uh, or the second, but it's, his term is El Bravo for, uh, for reasons we'll understand later. Um, and El Bravo, this, the son, um, said to his father, that, you know, I don't think these people are gods. I think we can kill them. I think we can fight them and we can, you know, liberate our people and get out from under this colonial rule because it was very violent. Um, And so what they did was they went to a local river uh, and there was a Spaniard that was near the river and his name was Salcedo. And they told him, hey, man, like, if you want to come hang out with us and we can go party on the other side of this river, there's a bunch of beautiful women over there. Uh, Come join us. It'll be a good time. 
And he's like, okay, sure, yeah. And they're like, all right, so just like hop on our shoulders and we'll carry you across the river because that's actually what a lot of the Spaniards would force the natives to do. And so, you know, it was customary, got halfway around the river and just, oof, right, it just drowned him immediately and aggressively, dragged his body to the side of the river. They waited three days because in the Christian religion, God rose, or Jesus rose after three days. And uh, mm-hmm. they waited there for that time when he did not rise from the grave. They dragged his dead body back to the cacique and said, I told you they weren't gods. We can not only fight them, but we can kill them. And in that moment, that's when it sparked the Taino revolt of 1511, which you can look up and look into it. You know, it's a very old tale. So you can use your own critical thinking skills about uh, whether how much of it is true or not. But to me, even just the story of it has meant a lot. And growing up, that statue was really there my whole time, every time I went there. So this idea that Puerto Rico has always been colonized or that we're incapable of fighting back, right? Like that was never instilled in me. It was always that we're in a constant struggle for our independence. Um, And so we're seeing that Taino spirit sort of reemerge in the Puerto Rican people. And I always want to remind folks that, you know, we have a history that is much deeper and much richer than just the time that we have been colonized. And it'll be deep and rich after we are done with colonialism as well. And so I think that is kind of where I come at it and why I come at it with a very different uh, perspective and narrative, you know, when it comes to the island than maybe folks that, you know, support uh, continued colonialism or statehood might. Yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, for, for people who are not familiar with the alternate terms of Boricua and Borinquen, mm-hmm. sure. refer to people of the island and the island itself, Borinquen being the name, the, the Taino name of the island. Um, it, you know, that idea as, you know, that anti-colonial posture as expressed just through like refusing to call it Puerto Rico mm-hmm. and calling it Borinquen again. And, yep. and so... Deep from the 500-year history of resistance in Bodhi, mm-hmm. um, Jason, uh, you, you've arisen, right? You—you <laughs> um, you are part of this like change of hands that took place in Puerto Rico, in, like following the Spanish-American War in 1898, and we're all caught up now in this dualness, tripleness, mm-hmm. in some way um, identities, quadruple identities in Puerto Rico. Um, so, all right, kids, for the, the historical timeline, right? You got your War of 1898. You got the Four Acre Act of 1900, which mm-hmm. established a civilian government um, in Puerto Rico. That was the U.S. Congress. Um, that um, also, you could think the Four Acre Act alongside um, um, drawing a blank now on the 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 treaty that was signed with Cuba that allowed for Cuba to establish its own government technically on its own quote. Um, but the four acre act did not give Puerto Rico autonomy. No, it created the colonial government of Puerto Rico. Yes. Excuse me. Yes. We <laughs> 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 have to be very clear with that. Cause I've had arguments at bars before, especially with Rosario. They're like, Oh, they're evicting the Puerto Rican governors that they're evicting the colonial governor of Puerto Rico. Cause there is no actual government of Puerto Rico, but that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> Let's okay. Yes, put that out there. Put that on the table. We're coming. We're, we'll, work, we'll work our way up to that. Um, all right, nineteen seventeen Jones Act or Jones Shafroth Act, yep. which grafted basically anybody who was born in Puerto Rico after eighteen ninety eight into U.S. citizenship. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 
this is not for some noble cause. Two months later, World War One comes along. Puerto Rican men are now eligible for selective service, right? And so they're mm-hmm. immediately being drafted in. Um, and so I, I just wanted I that I note that little tidbit comes to me because I've heard that in myth, and like there are people who deny that that was the like explicit cause for the passage of that act. But um, a friend of mine and uh, like mentor scholar, Carlos Alamo Pastrana, who's at, um, man, I'm drawing a blank on everything. I don't know where he's teaching these days, <laughs> where he's at. Uh, but his book, this is a better way to find them, Scenes of Empire, Race and Radicalism ah, in Puerto Rico and the United States, goes into the little history around the Jones Act and the Selective mm-hmm. Service Act um, and making Puerto Ricans available as just like, fodder for the war cannons, right? Uh, sure, and we have one of the highest enlistment rates of any community in the country, Puerto Ricans do. Yeah, right, which is incredible. And my own family's engagement with Puerto Rico and my birth, my you know, my dad was born in the Bronx and his family has people on both sides of Puerto Rico uh, or both sides of the Atlantic. But I was fortunate in some way to be born in Puerto Rico um, and grew up there until I was about three um, as a kid. But that experience has always been kind of conflicted for me now that I've gotten older and thought back on it because it's part of this very colonial expression, right? That Puerto Rico in those days was a showpiece of the U.S. military's uh, anti-communist, you know, propaganda um, in the Caribbean. And, you know, but but my parents and the way they talked about the way the local Puerto Rican community, you know, took investment in that. Like it was run by Puerto Ricans, right? Most of the people on that base. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, but they're, you know, like that doesn't, <laughs> right? I mean, like this is how colonialism works, right? You know, yeah. it, it has to work by enlisting a certain number of people to like work along with it, you know, and like these hegemonies. Um, so yep. technically Puerto Rico is defined as Estado Libre Asociado, right? A commonwealth, a free, a free state, free state of association. Free associated state, yeah. So what do you want to say about that? <laughs> oh man, I can say a lot about that. So I think it's just, you know, using academic jargon to cover up what is colonialism. And so we can call it whatever we want, but if it's not sovereignty or autonomy, it's colonialism. And so what happened there, the free associated state was supposed to be in its inception with Beco Luis Munoz Marin, uh, uh, a step towards independence. Uh, and so at the time, it was actually like the leftist proposition, right? Because we were going to be removing uh, some of the control of the colonial government. Um, you know, there was, for instance, there was the colonial government could approve or disapprove any administrator, right? The governor, the secretary, whatever, they could just say, nope, you're out. Uh, and so one of those things was to establish this colonial government. But the colonial government, of course, is a bit of a farce. It's used to make you feel like there's participation when in reality all decisions can be vetoed by U.S. Congress. So the way I try to describe this, we could imagine that everything that happened in Congress, if we gave Vladimir Putin a veto, would we still feel like we were in control of our country? 
and absolutely not, right? Like all of our interests would be subverted to whatever Vladimir Putin would want. And so that's the situation that we currently have under the free associated state. Secondly, it's not freely associated. Uh, we, we don't really have the ability to leave that interaction. Um, we don't have the ability to set our own economic policy. We don't have the ability to not honor trade agreements that are not in our best interest. For example, the Jones Act has a number of economic impacts onto the island that we cannot say, nope, we're done with that. That's not working for us. So there's really no free association about it if we're forced to accept things that don't work for us. Um, so really, it's just a cover up for continued colonialism. You get some of your people in positions of power. So you're uh, masters now have the same color as you and you know they will do what they got to do to make their riches and it's not like Puerto Ricans are immune to greed just like any other community uh, as we're seeing with Rosa Yo, that's you know very clear and so capitalism has a way of being able to divide the people by paying one half to you know ruin the other and I think that's the situation that we are currently in with this free associated state and we cannot solve just about any of the big problems that are plaguing us, any of the big problems that are causing the revolt under this political arrangement. Right. And, and you know, like if you mentioned the Jones Act and it's the colonial, like the stipulations that it has on trade and, and other things. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that was a big component of part of the like Maria crisis um, that we can, mm-hmm. I guess, like, I don't know, I don't know if we want to, Let's let me let's set up pre Maria because Maria as a hurricane was powerful enough that it could have taken uh, you know Puerto Rico from a a relatively we'll say stable situation into a crisis. It was one of those hurricanes that's just that bad, right? And I want people to get a couple senses of this because okay, let me I'm gonna be very specific. Several, several years ago, I was with a, an Argentinian friend of mine in Florida. We were staying at some people's house that was like friend of a friend of a friend. And we were getting progressively radicalized because these very capitalist people whose friends of friends were allowing us to stay there, you know, were making comments that we were hearing them say things about like, oh, this is just like the Caribbean, but has stable government. And, you know, little like... Things that like were bothering the ears of those of us who know Latin America from the inside, right? In certain ways. Mm-hmm. And so I want people to understand something about like, cause there's this idea that like, oh, any hurricane hits these places in the Caribbean and because they're shithole countries in Trump's kind of wording, they fall apart. No, right? Maria was a powerful superstorm. We have those same kinds of things happening in the continental United States as far as hurricanes going. Look, like Florida was devastated last year or two years ago as well. Texas has been devastated. So let's just put that out there. I want to I wanna dispel that, right? These hurricanes are getting stronger, right? The, so that, that, but then also... <laughs> Leading up to the hurricane, though, Maria could not have hit at a worse time for Puerto Rico mm-hmm. in the last like 40, 50 years yeah, of its history as far as its poise and readiness to respond to that kind of a like climate emergency. Because going back to the Great Recession of 2008, Puerto Rico's um, okay, this is really wonky too, but I, you know, I'm. This yeah, yeah, colonialism uses policy to do really you know, you know what I mean? like, nefarious things. 
important to unravel that spaghetti. You know? It's nefarious, like to the the little legal tax code structures and things that become the mechanisms of this stuff. So I just want to like un not a, just a little bit of it, and I want to give credit to um, hold on here. I'm, I want to make sure I cite the people who I'm getting this from. Um, I should have been better prepared for this. Let me, let me, I'll, I'll come back to the citation uh, when I part of being a Puerto Rican is dealing with stuff you're not prepared for. There's always something, man. <laughs> like, you know, I'm not, I would just wing it otherwise, but like, <laughs> I'm going to be professional up here. Uh, we had uh, um, section 936 of the U.S. tax code <laughs> um, allowed for tax breaks. This goes back to the 70s. This goes back to, Operation Bootstrap, um, capitalist infusion on the island that was trying to make Puerto Rico a model of what capitalism could do relative to what Cuba um, was experimenting with in the 60s um, under the revolution in the 70s, right? So in the 70s, the U.S. has this tax break that allows for U.S. manufacturers to avoid any corporate income taxes, which is already its own clusterfuck of a thing. But what it uh, superficially in a neoliberal kind of way allowed for this like artificial, um, you know, stability in Puerto Rico. And over time, though, that code became, you know, other austerity measures um, or, or actually in the United States, there was aversions to it because it was corporate tax breaks. Um, and so I guess there must have been some kind of populist movement against it. And so President Clinton phased it out or started to phase it out in 1996. Uh, it would be phased out over 10 years. And so that phases out in 2006, which means that Puerto Rico is in, in like a time of under capital development. And, and a lot of people are starting to leave the island. Yeah. Uh, you know, brain drain, as people would say, quote unquote type things. Um, this is all if you care about a kind of neoliberal bourgeois, uh, global 21st century, you know, like all those things, Puerto Rico was starting to not be that anymore. But that's because the U.S. direct involvement in that kind of artificial stabilization was done, right? And that also tracks alongside with the Navy being officially driven out um, in the mid-90s or I think around the year 2000 as well. So the U.S. officially, like, washes its hands with Puerto Rico in the early aughts because they're kind of done that like the, the iron curtains collapse now, like they're not really interested in investing in that showpiece anymore. And then the great recession hits in 2008, Puerto Rico has no ability um, to file for bankruptcy. And because of the colonial situation, a lot of their debt is already tied up in federal bonds and things like that. And so on uh, where other States in the United States after 2008, I think declared bankruptcy, if I'm not mistaken, Puerto Rico. Uh, no state has declared bankruptcy, but numerous okay, cities. Okay, numerous have. cities had. And I guess so, states were getting bailed out, right? And I don't know if Puerto Rico was subject to some of that bailout money that was floating around in 2000. No. Well, Puerto Rico is not a state. And so any, you know, support mechanisms for states don't apply to Puerto Rico. The thing with Puerto Rico is always. You know, they, they treat it like part of the U.S. when it's convenient for the U.S., and they treat it like a foreign country when it's convenient for the U.S. And so there are pieces and elements that the 
Puerto Rican colonial government can access sometimes. Uh, but for the most part, a lot of those benefits are denied the island. And, you know, while we're on this piece of this, like parts of it are subject to as if it's the United States. I know there's I forget the, the like the constitutional legal case that made this like distinction between like internal colonies or internal territories and external ones or some again legalese bullshit but yeah (laughs) like in 2017 but like right i guess this is right around the time of media um, so maybe i'm kind of jumping ahead because the promesa promesa happens before media right yes okay so insular cases Insular cases, if folks want to look that up, that that is uh, a number of Supreme Court decisions that cemented the second class status. And just so we can put it in really super fast context here, the actual Supreme Court languages Puerto Rico belongs to, but is not a part of the United States. So I have a lot of arguments. And I don't always go with this argument with folks that I know that mean well by and they say, oh, Puerto Rico is part of the United States. No, it's property of the United States and it treats it like property. But it's and not so it's the same. Yeah, but it is by literal law. The Supreme Court says it is not part of the United States, right? Yeah. And so, just like my car isn't a part of me, it belongs to me, right? But it doesn't get a say in what I do with my life because it's property, right? And so that's how the United States Congress feels about Puerto Rico. You know, while we're on this piece right here, um, recently the Trump administration has been fighting to have the census ask people if they're citizens or not. And and part of their legal defense as to why they should be able to do that is because the census has these like other surveys that they take from time to time in which they do ask people these kinds of questions. And whether or not those are constitutional is another question. <laughs> but the point being, though, I got one of these damn things in the mail a few years ago, right? And what was shocking to me about it was the granularity that it got into if I was born in a U.S. territory or not. And then if I was born in a U.S. territory and my parents were citizens, was their citizenship a result of them being born in that territory as well? Or were they born in the actual contiguous states, right? Or like the, the state. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, I remember telling my parents, I was like, not, you know, my parents were like, oh, well, like, it's not like you need to worry about your citizenship. My dad was born in the Bronx. My mom was born in Virginia. You're fine. And like, well, first of all, right. Okay. But it still made me feel uncomfortable that somewhere in Washington, D.C. right now, they have a very specific breakdown of Puerto Ricans who have their U.S. citizenship because they had moved to the United States at some point and were born in the United States, the actual states, or if their citizenship was like only ever a product of them being on the island. Mm-hmm. And I don't know mm-hmm. what you do with a list like that, right? Like, but, or what you do with statistics like that. But there, you know, like that, and it, this was under the Trump administration too, which is why it just felt like, you know, one of the, one of the very many dirty things that this government is, I mean, they've been doing dirty things for a long time, but there have been moments in this history where Puerto Rico having at least a, like a good public face for the world was part of the colonial project. Right and now, part of the colonial project seems to be like deliberately putting Puerto Rico out as trash and and letting it become run down and economically destitute. And so that way it's cheap to buy and reinvest in or something. And, mm-hmm. you know, so 
it lurches in different ways. But okay, I, I didn't want to really get into that too much. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, we got it, man. Promesa, which is such a... Uh, now, you want to talk about 1984 style. Uh, right. <laughs> so Promesa is the Spanish word for promise. Mm. And it's also an acronym for Puerto Rico Oversight Management and Economic Stability Act, which let me see exactly when this was passed. Do you know? I don't know exactly. I'm going to guess 2015, like uh, spring of 2015. Okay. It looks like right. Something like that. It was enacted in 2016, so it might have been passed beforehand, but or like the discussions around it were around. I'll just say I know it was introduced and essentially approved under Obama. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's important to know. Promesa <laughs> is like the most. Uh, you know, if there was any again, if there was a facade in this idea of the Estado Asociado, you know, libre. Mm-hmm. This is completely gone, and like that, the Congress had the veto authority over Puerto Rico was always the kind of fog back. But now Puerto Rico doesn't even have true like autonomy, even on the island itself. It doesn't even have to get the Congress. Right, right. Who's Promesa? What is Promesa? Promesa was a bill, a package of bills that was uh sold as a solution or at least a stopgap to the debt crisis that had developed. Puerto Rico had roughly $90 billion in debt. Um, I personally believe none of it was legitimate, but that's, and again, you know, we can talk about that later, but there was this no, debt. It wasn't. $90 billion. Just, it wasn't. Okay. <laughs> I, I, again, you know, it's interesting because on the island, there's a bit of an academic argument about the difference between audit the debt and cancel the debt as far as movement demands. Um, and, you know, different groups have different ideas about that. But that $90 billion is owed to someone. A huge chunk of it was to vulture capitalists uh, who buy up distressed debt from distressed countries. It's a similar situation happened in Greece and when they had their debt crisis before. A lot of the same players, actually. Um, and then, you know, a number of just big hedge funds is another big chunk of it. And those hedge funds are folks that sell these funds that say, if you invest in this fund, we're going to put your money in all these different places. One of those places was Puerto Rican debt. Unfortunately for a lot of the folks in the States, a number of municipal and even state pension plans got tied up in that. And so there are direct links to the pension situation in the States just to know how nefarious even something as simple as a municipal pension fund could be. You could be investing in the oppression of black and brown people all over the world. Um, and so, yes, that's going to be a problem when those people decide they don't want to have that relationship anymore, uh, and throw you out. So Promesa was an attempt to try to put, uh, some kind of process in place because, uh, the former governor before Rosario, uh, Padilla, uh, said quite clearly the debt is unpayable. And so he had no way to figure out how to actually pay this debt. Number of different legislators put together Promesa. It was highly controversial at the time. Lots of protests against it. Uh, the most controversial piece of it was the creation of La Junta, or the Fiscal Oversight Management Board, which is a board of nine people who are appointed by the president, and there's a couple by Congress. You know, there's kind of a split there, but it's all congressional uh, app- appointments. And that board gets to have control over all the finances, and especially any big contracts that are allowed 
uh, to be, you know, sold or not sold in the government. And, you know, at first glance, like, oh, you know, oversight is good. We want to make sure there's not corruption. We see what happened with Ricky Russell Yale right now. There was a tremendous amount of corruption. We need to root it out. However, that would only be accurate in the sense if the board uh, had, you know, the best interest of the Puerto Rican people in mind and not their own personal self-interest. And when you look at the composition of the board, you'll see that that's clearly uh, where this is going. There's a number of big banks represented. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Carion. No, name mm-hmm. them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> name okay, this Cruzano. Name them. No. <laughs> So, so, and you can find, you know, their names. I'll, I'll focus on the chairman specifically because he is, you know, the, the king of this little uh, circus. And, you know, so uh, Jose Carion, you know, Carion is also the word in English we use for uh, a dead, rotting carcass being eaten <laughs> by animals. And so it's very fitting that he is in the role he is as he is trying to, you know, make himself fat over, you know, a suffering people. Um, but so he was actually a part of a number of administrations under the Fortunio administration. Um, he was also very much connected with Rosario Sr. Both of those administrations uh, ballooned the debt. So essentially, we have the guy that was the liaison between the banks and the people buying up, selling the debt for the government that created this problem is now there to be the one that oversees all of it getting paid back. So, of course, he's going to be there to make sure that the banks are paid back, even at the expense of the people in Puerto Rico's pension plans, even at the expense of the people in the state's pension plans, even at the expense of the entire economy of Puerto Rico and all that it would damage in the process. And so he's still there. He was most recently named to be the co-chair of Latinos for Trump, the committee for 2020, Uh uh, just to put you as far as where he is on the political spectrum. Um, And this... Scott, you're telling me someone on the austerity board <laughs> supports mm-hmm. Trump. Yeah. Right. Yep. He's literally the co-chair no. for Latinos for Trump, and he's the chair of the fiscal control board. Of course. Now, this is the kind of nasty, uh, like, the nexus of, you know, the where mm-hmm. it's kind of, like, fascist. Oh, and it's like, you know, they didn't even try to hide it. There's an excellent article by Hedge Clippers. So if folks Google hedge clippers uh, and then Jose Carion, uh, it goes into extreme detail. <laughs> they did a fantastic job citing everything. Uh, but, you know, very good detail as far as the connections between Carion and the various banks. And, you know, the other thing that I want to remind folks as we talk about this is all these folks are connected to the U.S. political parties. It's not like the Puerto Rican political system is just completely detached. Rosario is technically a Democrat. However, he is part and the leader of, was the leader of, the statehood party. So even within the statehood party, there are Democrats and Republicans, so to speak, within that party. Same thing with the PPD, the, um, the Democratic Party, which is essentially the Democrats, you know, similar ideology, but not quite. Um, and there's Republicans and Democrats within that party. So the corruption is definitely, you know, blue and red and everything in between. Uh, but the links have been proven. Uh, they're not something that's like hidden information or just speculation. Like folks have known this for a long time. So when Promesa passed, you know, there was a lot of folks that felt betrayed by progressive legislators that, you know, claimed they wanted to be helping out with the debt crisis and all this. But now La Junta is there and they were supposed to be overseeing everything, right? I like guess their whole purpose is to make sure that there's not corruption within the government. And, you know, conveniently we're there right before Hurricane Maria strikes. 
So then when Maria strikes and we start to see corruption and contracts being given out to, you know, ridiculous people, right? It's like the whole reason they were supposed to be there, they failed at it too. And well, this is right. Puerto Rico is now stuck with lots of useless entities that they don't have any direct control over. This is like, you know, the, the, I don't know if, you know, like on one side, it's either the super nefarious aspects of neoliberalism in that on the one hand, the like neoliberal rhetoric will tout efficiency mm -hmm. and like market the market as an efficient mechanism. Yep. And that's how these kinds of control boards, like the logic that allows for them to do what they do. And then they, because they are so efficient, quote unquote, they have so slashed their budgets. They destroy, like they mismanage things all the time. And you would think management would be like hand in hand with that kind of approach to the world. And yet they can't even, they don't even do that, which makes you wonder, are they just inept or is that part of the plan? Right? Cause this is one of, one of these same kind of fiscal control boards was overseeing the city of Flint, Michigan and made the decision to switch their water supply to the Flint river, knowing full well, that the reason they were spending more money to bring their water in from Lake Michigan, I believe, or from maybe the Detroit River or something, was because their local river was flooded, right? And so, mm -hmm. like, it's more expensive. But there's a reason why, because in the long run, saving money on the water is actually going to be way more costly to life if you care about that at all, right? Mm -hmm. Or, But they don't. And so I wonder, and I get, we'll never truly know, yeah, certainly control boards like this can't make hurricanes happen, you know. <laughs> no, but they, they can set the stage for whenever something bad happens, they're ready to take advantage of it. And then it's super easy to kind of sit back and wash your hands of it. And I guess I kind of helped make this argument for them because Maria was such a terrible, powerful hurricane, a hurricane that exemplifies everything that we've been told about what climate change will bring that you can act as if it's not your fault that you fucked up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was a natural disaster. Katrina was a natural disaster, right? Like never mind all of the ecological racism that allows certain communities to be more exposed to the elements than others. Right. And I, so, okay. Before, you know, the other thing about this too, these, I, I was trying to find it and maybe I'll be able to link to it um, when we post this, but there was a video that I saw making its round sometime around 2015, 2016 of New York, like a New York hedge fund um, that was doing like a like a promotional video for Puerto Rico, like two Americans uh, who might want to... I probably watched it. <laughs> Maybe you remember, because there was something about, like it's this voiceover of this like older white guy right. who's like flying into Puerto Rico and like is giving you this like aerial tour. Yeah. And it's all very National Geographic. And I remember one of the things that he comments on is even like, and they teach English in the school. <laughs> yeah. And the, and the only Puerto Rican in the entire video was a waiter. Yes, yes, yes. This is that same damn video, right? And it's just like, you know, that was the, regardless of whatever the, like the stated reasons that, you know, the kind of neoliberal globalist financiers will give you for what they needed to do in Puerto Rico following the crisis, that kind of video exposes the other side. Mm -hmm. They're just like pure libidinal side that they like the tropical atmosphere of the island. 
but it's a little exotic for them. But don't worry, you'll be able to speak English. I mean, it's like it's Tarzan of social media times. You know, it's like it was it was straight out of that playbook of just like. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's okay. It's, this is the most American <laughs> and like domesticated of the exotic yeah. locale. The only, the only thing they left out was, and the natives are docile. That's it. But they showed you that with the like yeah. the the waiter, right? Like right. that was their way of saying that. So yeah, this was this is on all sides of this thing. Like all this this project works all sides. You've mm-hmm. got your the the way capitalism rationalizes this shit, but then the way it's irrational and it's just about like your will to like take shit mm. and control things. Well, and I, and I think that video is also, you're right. Like the other side of colonialism isn't just the suffering of the local people, but the extravagant wealth that's extracted for a very few from the land that they then get to go gallivant around the world in it. And one piece that, you know, we haven't touched on here that has been a long time part and it's kind of coming in waves of different things was the tax system in Puerto Rico. So if you, myself, right, which I have lived in Puerto Rico, if you live in Puerto Rico and say you spend more than half the year there, you don't pay federal income taxes. And so, and there's a number of other capital gains taxes that you don't have to pay on. There's investment income. If you dump your money in Puerto Rico, you don't pay any taxes on that either. And so it's a way to... Like your primary residence is in the state? Correct. 181 days, right? And so, you know, however you can prove that to a corrupt government, it's not too hard. Uh, But, you know, if you think about the difference between operating a business in California or operating a business in Puerto Rico... It's a dramatic, and for some folks, it's millions and millions of dollars. And so there is this other piece of it where super white wealthy people are trying to get other super white wealthy people to move in and become, you know, like even like just direct colonization, right? Like we're going to displace these people. We're going to take their land. Former Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson owns billions of dollars of land in Puerto Rico. Um, there is a number of other very wealthy white American individuals that are going there and buying up all the land. And it is you know, a a tax haven, a tax dodging haven for a lot of these people. And so as we unravel all of it, you know, there's some pretty big names of American politics that are not just part and parcel, but are actively colonizing the island at this minute right now. Do you know who these people are? (laughs) Well, Hank Paulson is the one that I would put out, you know, as like the the clear one. There's another one. This guy's name is Seth Clareman. Uh, he's a business investor uh, who's uh, the Claremont and Associates, something that is in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. He's one of the biggest hedge fund managers that bought up all the Puerto Rican debt. And so he's uh, an East Coast target if anybody is looking for him. Uh, and so beyond that, also in, in a more modern, very 2019, uh, a lot of the Bitcoin bros went to Puerto Rico to yeah, try to see if they could cash out their Bitcoins. Right. Because they want to make crypto Rico. And you want to talk about a 2019 colonialism. Right. So we have these folks that made fake money and they got wealth on the Internet for other reasons, different podcasts for that. But they want to then use the colonial situation of Puerto Rico as a way to cash their coins out tax free and be able to then rebuild this island in their own image in Crypto Rico. Now, for them, and I have some friends that are part of this, they got literally shouted out of rooms. But they were able to use Bitcoin dollars to buy support from the local folks, right? Like we're talking right after Hurricane Maria, other people that don't have water, you come and give them whatever kind of money. If I can turn that into food and water, sure, dude, I'll be your friend. And that is some really 
nefarious and disgusting modern colonialism where we're now offering folks things like bitcoins that I think, you know, a lot of the folks there probably didn't understand what was going on. They just needed help and are claiming that they want to rebuild the island and help, right? You know, help the people there. And, you know, it's a very, of course, they would want to do that by the way it is set up, right? The current government, the current tax structure, the current everything is set up to incentivize that kind of behavior. And that is why we're in the situation we're in today and why we cannot continue uh, without dramatic political and economic changes. No, yeah, this is, I, I was down in, uh, in Puerto Rico in 2014 and I, these kinds of bros were running all around back then already. You know, I was <laughs> all over the place. It was cool. And they were all, you know, they were like Santarce, um, mm-hmm. which like Santarce goes back to, oh, its name was like something de los negros, uh, Congo de los negros or something back in the 18th century. It was a, a maroon society, a quilombo mm-hmm. where escaped slaves. Um, went and that part of Puerto Rico from like Santarce and it's stretching out along the northeast coast um, into Loisa, Aldea, and some other place. This is like where people will like, this is black Puerto Rico, although black Puerto Rico is all over Puerto Rico. Ponce is black, you know, but but this part of Puerto Rico, what right? And now, so in the 60s and 70s, Santarce was like the center of the salsa music industry in Puerto Rico, Mm -hmm. and I think it was booming because it had a of that investment money floating around too. Uh, this is some of my research mm-hmm. that I'm like dealing with. So I'm I'm saying this out loud for the first time. I'm starting to think some things in my head about like why was the Puerto Rican salsa music industry booming? Right. And there's also things in South Florida uh, where Cubans were moving because Cuba nationalized the music recording industry. So like salseros are fleet flooding out, like leaving Cuba and looking for places to set up their recording shops. But anyway. This part of Puerto Rico now, though, is like where all the white hipsters were setting up their entrepreneurial ventures. And it was really, yeah, you know, like, yeah, all vegan shots. And that's not to say that, like, Puerto Rico, there aren't veganos. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying not Puerto Rican peoples themselves enjoying some, like, coffee shops and things. But it was... It's part of, like these were the people who were all they're sitting in these coffee shops that were run by the, themselves, right? And these businesses that they're opening are these businesses that they're able to open because they get these special breaks. Yep. And that the local folks don't. Right. And local people can't. And so, you know, various, you know, I remember I was thinking to myself, like, how many more years of this before Santarce looks like Portland? Yeah. And not the not Brooklyn 30 years ago, you know, but like Brooklyn now. Mm -hmm. And so that, that other dynamic is, is happening too. And unfortunately, like this can all be intensified when a hurricane like Maria rolls through because whole neighborhoods are immediately wiped out. And right. And like, I don't have the statistics. I maybe should have looked this up, but Puerto Rico's population was already like some of the lowest as in the, in the last hundred years, as far as people who are actually on the Island, relative to people mm-hmm. moving into the United States and the, you know, the kind of depopulation that a disaster capitalism makes possible. Mm-hmm. It, you know, mm-hmm. like, it's an ongoing crisis. And part of the, the Ricky Renuncia protests, I saw that there were people holding signs against the junta too. So it's not, oh, about Jose, yo. it's not just about his tweets or, you know, his Instagram, you know, his messages mm-hmm. or whatever. Right. Although that was like what, 
that's the ma- the match on top of all this. But it's right. he it, he he is a figurehead for this entire structure, and the you know Hurricane Maria. When Donald Trump comes into Puerto Rico and like there's this conflict with the mayor of San Juan, Cardinal mm-hmm. Cruz, and Rosselló kind of like it's like the it is the good old boys club that started the you know where Trump was propping up Rosselló because they knew how to talk to each other and Trump right. didn't like that Cruz is a loud, outspoken, progressive, in his face, strong, independent woman, right? And and it, mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't want to reduce it all to a kind of like political machismo, but <laughs> it really, I you know, because like that, that's what like it's that. That's what we're dealing with, you know. It's it's not that it's solely that, but that you know the machismo. And the way dominance is expressed uh, between these communities, I think, you know, is is the whole thing, right? Like, there's no way we could talk about this issue and not talk about that. No, right? And I think, yeah. like, so, all right, now we can get into, like, bring us back to the protests again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, right. you, how, how do we want to... Before we go over Trump's part, though, because I think there's a few key elements that happened back then. So number one, when Trump showed up, you know, the question was how many people have passed away? And Trump said 16. Uh, and Rosa Yog did not correct him. He didn't say anything was different. And what the reality was, was thousands uh, more than Hurricane Katrina. And so that is a very particular moment where it was clear Rosa Yog was not in a position of power, right? He was subservient. And everyone in the country knew deep in their core, especially folks that had to bury their own family members, that that number was wrong. And we knew that that number would determine how intense the support would be, the, you know, whether or not the news media would cover it, right? Like this trip we all knew was going to be very important for the recovery effort if there was going to be one. And he totally failed to represent us as a people completely. Then Trump follows it up with the paper towel incident where he's making a game show out of this. And again, Rosa is right there supporting him. And so, you know, after the hurricane, it wasn't just the like physical part of it, but like we got to see this man. And, you know, as much as I have felt such incredible pride for the protest, there was also that same collective feeling of shame and embarrassment of the way we were being treated and having nothing that we could do about it. Because at that point, everyone was still hurting. We were trying to organize. We were just finding housing. Um, but we all felt it. And so I think that moment and those particular moments was the kindling, you know, was those you know, trees that fell that provided uh, fuel for the forest fire that came later. You know, that's a lovely metaphor, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well done, but um, I you know I want to. I try. I, I wanna, <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of these issues just can be complicated, but you know when you use yeah, metaphors, yeah, it's just, oh, okay, was I get it. It was, you know because it it it, it actually, but it's it's it, it it allows us to think about the destruction of Katrina, uh, Katrina the destruction of Maria, actually mm. in a way setting up and allowing now that right like it. It's amazing what like what people push to the edge find that they have the abilities to do right and the capability they're all mm-hmm. wrong but mm-hmm. you, you, have not, you have less things to lose perhaps than you did before and that emboldens you 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 mentioned the the 
the death count. Uh, and I think just to point out again, that like that, how important that actually is as far as people being able to file for assistance yes. relative yep. to those deaths. And if those deaths are not ruled, like I know there were situations of like people who were dialysis patients and diabetics and things who passed away right. in the weeks later because they did not have access to their prescription medicine and they, didn't have running water and things like that. And those deaths are not necessarily calculated as hurricane deaths. And, you know, like these, and and like that, whether or not you, you know, again, how much FEMA supplies to anybody or not is another thing to talk about. Right. But like to the extent that Puerto Ricans are citizens, like, those counts are really important. <laughs> and when you fuck that mm-hmm. up so mm-hmm. bad and that your governor won't even intervene, right? Like that's, that, that's a real material political struggle that is also symbolic in some ways. And, and, and it has a lot to do with and will impact land ownership. And so if my grandmother passes away after the events of Hurricane Maria and I physically cannot get to a hospital and she passes away, I may not be able to prove that we own our house anymore, right? Like I may not be able to show documents that we didn't have or that got washed away in Hurricane Maria. Right. And so, you know, there are very clear material, financial and intergenerational wealth problems that come from that. Not, you know, then there's that. But then there's the also who's accountable, who did what, you know, like how do we make this happen? The morgues, and not to be you know, very morbid about this, but it is important to express the gravity of the situation, the morgues are filling up. And so if you don't have electricity and you don't have anywhere to put dead bodies, things are going to get really nasty. And so we're not going to be able to unravel a whole bunch of different things. So even the uh, official counts, which are in the 4,000 range, you know, are dramatically right. underreported. No, that the other thing around that um, that you bring to mind is um, – well, something that I wanted to maybe point out if it, if it played up and, and I think maybe just throwing this in now and then we'll jump to the protest. But when all this is going on over the last couple of weeks as the protests are unfolding, you also have 45 making his comment about the four House representatives that he says can go back where they're from, one of which being Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, born in the Bronx, grew up in parts of the Bronx and Westchester, right? And then, though, like, so is she supposed to go back to Puerto Rico? Puerto Ricans have been citizens for 100 years. If Puerto Rico is one of those places that he's talking about, like, whose responsibility is that? And again, trying to draw these lines as if he's that coherent and, like, gotcha, or, like, I can prove his premises. I don't think he actually thought through that she was from Puerto Rico, or maybe he did, but like he already has demonstrated time and time again that he thinks Puerto Ricans are trash, right? And the way he mm-hmm. throwing that paper towel out and and all like it's just in every possible way, you know, like the thing that is coherent about him is his absolute racism. But the the like as, as, as many of the many pieces of Trump's racism and his border policies and all his things, like the particular relationship of Puerto Rico and the United States in this moment is also going through a reconfiguration of some kind. And, and so it's just another thing. I don't know where it's going, but it's interesting to just we need to just keep watching it as one of the like a million things that are like thrown into a more amplified crisis right now. 
Um, but this is like one of the, okay, so this is a, there is a good, not ending, right? But there's a good arc to this story, the actual protest, because <laughs> the actual protests were yes. popular sovereignty in, in motion, we'll say. Literally in motion. Right, yeah, Yes, yes, absolutely. And so, you know, as all these different points of, you know, difficulty made the island stronger and more resilient, when it was finally time for folks to, you know, get out in the streets. And while I'll say, you know, yes, it, it happened relatively quickly over two weeks, uh, there have been people protesting and organizing for years and years and years. So it wasn't 100%. It just came out of nowhere. Um, but, you know, the breadth of different communities that all got involved and the lack of specific organizations that needed to, like, take credit was uh, amazing to see it all kind of happen um, and so protests erupted all over the country. People were flooding La Fortaleza is the name of the governor's mansion in Viejo San Juan, which is actually a, a pretty touristy area, I would say, of Puerto Rico. It's a beautiful space. Um, and so I was there not too long ago. I actually was going for vacation to bring my partner for her first time to see Puerto Rico, to share the island with her and, and explain to her why the colonists want to keep it. Um, and so we go and it just, we, you know, we're watching the news and seeing the protests. They don't call it Isabel Encanto for nothing, you know? Right, right, exactly. And so, you know, it is a magical place and has helped me healed in my soul many times in my life uh, for issues, you know, unrelated to Puerto Rico. And so I'm very thankful that the island is there for us to be able to go back and, and heal there. Um, but, you know, the island healed me in a very different way this time. And so we go and, you know, we actually have a friend that has uh, a small coffee shop, Migi Arroyo and Caldera Cafe in Viejo San Juan. You should guys go check it out and tell her Jason sent you. Uh, <laughs> and so we were having coffee there. And she's like, oh, you guys came at a great time. This is about to be a protest right around the corner, like right now. Uh, and so we had to go back and change our shoes and put some sneakers on because we were going to go and support and document. And, of course, as, you know, somebody in the diaspora, I have a lot of connections with Puerto Ricans here, and I want to make sure they know what's happening on the island because sometimes stateside Boricuas, you know, think, oh, they're not mobilizing, but they are every day. And so I always make a commitment to show that. Well, this time it was one of the bigger police confrontations that happened, and Calle Fortaleza is the main road that goes there, um, and it's where all the big umbrellas are. So there's like a whole row, like a hallway, basically, where there's umbrellas at the top that are a symbol of Rocio's administration. He put them there. Um, and that was now being protected by a line of police. And so when we got there, people were already chanting. The streets are already flooded. And it was completely peaceful. It was very uh, festive, right? <laughs> like the way people were chanting, more people were dancing than really angry. Um, but it was clear there was too many people, like there was a huge crowd and everywhere around was flooded, cars couldn't come through. Um, and so the police eventually had to decide, are we just going to give up or are we going to try to use violence against these people? Uh, and so they did decide to use tear gas at a certain point. And if you go to the Connecticut Puerto Rican Agenda's Facebook page um, and scroll down a bit, you can see a lot of that. Uh, firsthand. I was there to witness it very personally. I got to taste the tear gas. It tastes like vinegar, basically. Um, and But also to see how completely useless the tear gas was, because that first can went out and people got nervous, but everyone around that had been through this before immediately started saying, suave, suave, and that means soft or slow, right? And so people then calmed down a little bit, and the stampede never happened, and the leaving of the space never happened. The, you know, folks with masks on, anarchists and, and puchapo, and puchalos, I forget exactly the right term, um, just grabbed the can and threw it back. 
Uh, and so I saw the police try and like, I mean, within five minutes, the people are right back in the exact same spot again. And right. the police were definitely getting frustrated, but it was amazing to see La Plaza where a lot of folks go to take pictures of the pigeons and all this. That was a sort of a tourist attraction for me was where everybody was getting their eyes cleaned out by milk uh, subs- uh, substances, you know, to try to get the tear gas out. Folks were giving medallias out to anybody that was injured, right? And so it was like the spot that I would be with my grandma before to take, you know, fancy pictures of the cool colored buildings. Medallias beer for people who are right? Yeah. I, so it was just really incredible to see that and be able to broadcast it back to the States, right? And to show what was really happening. And it was clear that after that day, because in all honesty and seriousness, the people beat the police, right? Like they out-organized, they out-strategized them, and it was literally nothing the police could do. Uh, and so to see yeah, that I had here, no- back home, you know, that, that was a point of pride that is unmatched in my life for sure. I had one of the things that I had um, followed during the several, well, I guess, you know, there's like 10 days or so of like these intense, um, you know, five, six, seven hundred thousand, maybe a million people even um, were out. And one of the things that I saw was the, uh, that the, the protest had moved from the tiny little like cobblestone streets in actual Viejo San Juan out to the Avenida de las Americas, which is like a much wider, broader, open high. I think that was like Monday, if that's the 25th or 24th. So the national strike? The, right. Yes. Uh-huh. Right, and like by that. Okay. So let's get into the national strike aspect of this. Sure. Yeah. Because it's amazing. The, like the labor component of that. So, man. So, you know, the, the battle for Viejo San Juan is calling happened. You know, things escalated. Then Rosario responds, I have heard the people. I'm not going to run again in 2020. And people are like, are you kidding me, man? Like, we definitely know you're not going to run again. We want you out now. And so his response to that just, like, inflamed everything. And eventually somebody called for a paro nacional. And so that is a national strike. That means we're shutting the whole city down, the whole country down, and we're all going to protest together at the same time. It is unheard of that it actually happens. Like, it's only happened a few times in human history. And at this point in time, there was roughly 40% of the population of Puerto Rico was part of the Paro Nacional in San Juan. And so there's these huge pictures. You can see just like a mile of a massive crowd, you know. And so in that 40%, you know, doesn't include all the old folks that like physically couldn't be there, you know. And so like the whole uh, island was part of this protest. And labor, of course, was a huge part of actually shutting it down. It was kind of funny. There was a moment where the truckers union for Pepsi and the truckers union for Coca-Cola both like got off their trucks and were like, now nah, we're doing this for Puerto Rico this time. And so, you know, once labor really starts to put their foot down, that we're going to shut the economics of this island down, if that's what it takes, you know, that's when financial interests start to get very nervous. Um, you know, cruise lines are no longer going to be coming to the island. And so now American companies are going to start losing money. Right. And, you know, it wasn't just the economics. It really, the sheer percentage and number of people that participated is very few other moments in human history has it been that and any group of people that united in opposition uh, and on the streets about it. And, you know, I was surprised, too, because often like having celebrities jump in on a movement or like come out to a protest <laughs> kind of like cheapens it in some way but like on yeah. this one i like i was surprised because there's no 
part of the the Enrique Renuncia protest that I like that offend my political sensibilities in any way, but yet all these mega stars that otherwise <laughs> I'm sure their politics and mine don't line up. Right, you know, right. Ricky Martin, who you said was one of the targets of those yeah. homophobic messages in the chat. So like he had a very personal reason to be out there, but that's interesting. Uh, you know, and for, we'll, I'll talk about that in a second. Daddy Yankee was out there. Reggaetoneros. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Re- Residente from Calle 13 was one of the more important ones. And, and Bad Bunny was Bad another Bunny. one. Bad Bunny was, yes. Those, those three, I would say, Ricky Martin, Residente, and Bad Bunny were definitely at the what? forefront. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, like, I'm, I'm not naive to what was going on, but I'm going to be honest, like, following Bad Bunny on social media really like, <laughs> put me on the, like, okay, like, this is really big. Yeah. This isn't just yeah. like another protest or something, but this is like the protest, right? Like that, you know, right. it's trying to take on that the inertia of like this is the protest for all of this shit that's been going down yeah. over the last yeah. however many years you want to start this count, but specifically we'll say the last ten years since the crisis, the most for recent sure. crisis, and then Promesa and then Maria, right? And it's like all of that, and, and I think you know. The, the the one that is most within the grasp of the millennial Gen Z, you know, Gen X or Generation 2, right? A lot of us were too young during the Vieques protest to really participate. And so for us, we finally had the opportunity to really go full force. And I think, you know, Residente had actually been censored by the government uh, a long time ago when he was with Calle 13, where the government made it illegal for him to perform in Puerto Rico because uh, he was speaking against the governor then. Uh, so he's got a long history of activism in Puerto Rico. Bad Bunny is a bit of a newer artist, but is much more cross-genre, sort of cross-gender identity, you know, kind of guy that brought a lot of folks together. And all of these folks, maybe not Ricky Martin, but both the Residente and Bad Bunny were on the island after Hurricane Maria. And so these folks were doing the, the real work then, too. And so the people, I think this is the big difference, right? Like, if J-Lo were to come out and be like, oh, I'm supporting it, it's like, girl, right, where were you right. when we needed you? Right, like you're gonna come out now and you're gonna put your name on it. But Bad Bunny and Residente were out there giving out food and water, so that people were like, "Nah, bro, he he can lead. He knows what he's doing." And 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 I also think they didn't they didn't actually take the lead, right? Like they were leading from the back in a lot of ways. They would provide you know forums and platforms, but it wasn't like they were telling the protesters they could or couldn't do. Um, And so. Right, right. You know, they did it. It's a, it's a model, I would say, you know, for other folks. And there were other artists, too, that stepped in. Benito del Toro, there were a number of uh, women artists that also, you know, were, were vital to the process. So, you know, it, it was it was interesting to see because I think you're right that, like, people didn't see it as they were taking advantage of the situation. People were very thankful that they were adding to the situation. And, you know, it just goes to show that, you know, the, the unity was there in so many ways. And that was a big part of why it was successful. Right. I, you know, and I, so the, the, the distinctness to like of the genre of reggaeton and like trap now, like trap reggaeton as having mm. these, like you were mentioning Presidente and I know like Tego Calderon has been like very mm-hmm. political and anti-state in his, you know, mm-hmm. reggaeton um, music. And so that that distinct 
like anti-authority, anti-state power kind of, um, you know, like a, that becomes the vehicle of the protest. And in some ways, right, like giving the perreo. Mm-hmm. So perreo is the form of dancing and the music, I guess. <laughs> so, you know, it's like it's it's perreo is all of that. It's that whole scene, right? right. right. It's the scene, I would say, is a good way to put it. It's the scene, right? I think, uh, yeah. So Colin, I think, and Tommy Torres, I guess, gets the credit. Or maybe he was using a <laughs> term that uh, was already, like, being spoken on the streets. But that holding a perreo combativo as part of the strategy, right, which, I, as you mentioned earlier, right, was the last... Well, the last night before, Rosario finally um, relented, but they gathered at the the cathedral of San Juan Bautista. So, you know, San Juan named after St. John the Baptist and like the basilica being the oldest basilica in the new world from 15 whatever, goddamn. And Mm -hmm. there you have thousands of people twerking and (laughs) mameando their asses and shit. And, uh, yeah. It's great. It's, and, and thinking well, about all of that as like, cause like the, that kind of like overt sexuality and like you were saying, the kind of gender mm-hmm. play of the, some of the artists and you know, that culture being positioned in some way against this like figurehead of that kind of like good old boys club. No way sure. of governing. Uh, I, I just I like the, the the optics of all that, and I'm bringing this up because our most recent episode was one in, that looked at carnival traditions um, in the Caribbean as mm. these kinds of like demonstrations of public sovereignty and choreographing your way to liberation, and that these what mm. would otherwise just show up, you know, during like uh, any other kind of like festive atmosphere all of the things that people already knew what to do were like what they were using in as tools weaponizing their bodies and things in these like very interesting ways that is like a very creative form of protest um but in brazil they have protests called bateku which um in portuguese bateku is like shaking your ass like i guess in spanish it would be bateculo <laughs> But it's it's the same thing. It's like twerking, but they do this to like take up public commons um, from like corporate, mm-hmm. you know, from the corporatization of public space. They'll have flash mobs that just go out and twerk. And so it it right. I was surprised, I guess, to see this not necessarily, but like to look at United States political protest and to think about Puerto Rico as a protest against the United States of U.S. citizens using what I would have thought of a couple weeks ago as like a very distinct Latin American form of protesting. Um, I'm just very excited. <laughs> Are about you saying American? I'm saying I want to see like Black Lives Matter start Cupid shuffling it in the streets or something too, because that I, I want to see, you know, let's see, let's, I want to see that if U.S. strategies started dancing immediately. I, we don't have that culture in like U.S. activism right, right. necessarily. Like there's a singing tradition in the civil rights movement, but I, it, wasn't, it mm-hmm. wasn't a like dance and like shake your ass because it was very like churchy. I, I would love to just see more 
public dancing as protest in the U.S. Absolutely. Well, and I think, you know, a lot of real, you know, I mean, it has to be organic and real in the way it comes about. Right. Well, I mean, and we do have a history of using music to unite oppressed communities. Right. And so like hip hop is a good example. No, I don't know if it's not the best like a protest as far as just like uh, it's a very aggressive and angry um, (laughs) tone usually. But, you know, breakdancing and things like that. Like these are all oppressed communities that had to find a new way of expressing themselves in order to join together. And I think LGBT communities, you know, I'm a straight man, so I can only speak from position of what I know from those that I care about that are in that community. Um, But, you know, cross class lines, you know, it crosses racial lines. And so the LGBT community can draw from a lot of these different types of music. Like we can thank the LGBT community for most of like, house music and techno, right? And a big part of it was because folks couldn't be in these other spaces themselves or welcome at all, right? There's usually violent situations if you were to go to some uh, establishment music, whatever that is, I guess, you know, top 40 or something, right? A lot of our communities are pushed out of those spaces and we use music to bring folks together. And so I seem to say that reggaeton, like reggaeton is, you know, known as the you know music of the streets. And so it's not... Uh, very well liked by the establishment and thus don't really like the establishment much back either. And so I think there is an interesting dynamic between the states, right, and establishment and those sort of cultural expressions that are trying to push back on a very conservative state. Um, and so reggaeton happened to be the one that, you know, is, is right now and it's very powerful and it's actually very high energy, the music itself, right? Like it is a, a, a Lots of bass and things going on. So when it comes to dancing all night, like reggaeton is good for that. Uh, and so yes. to, to, to see it out in the streets, you know, like it was just like it was the most Puerto Rican thing I'd ever seen in my life. And it was. Uh, you know, I want to tell you this, though, right? Because honestly, I mean, I love I want to burn the whole damn thing down. right? <laughs> but I love my people. And like in the 21st century with like state drone warfare i don't know how like how much of a chance we would have if we were going to like actually storm the citadel mm-hmm, you know what mm-hmm. i mean like it, that that may kind of work there's a time where there was like a sweet spot between the public and like an actual violent class where you're gonna like you might actually beat the state right. I, I don't know if that's possible today right and i wouldn't recommend that we try that but what i would say is that like i still want people to learn how to marshal their bodies together and like you may not be forming ranks in an army mm-hmm. but you need to be learning how to do something with people in groups in like big settings like that because the the struggle has to be collectivized and literally if it's just like we have to get so many of us just like in the street to do nothing else but just hold that space and as long as we can hold it we'll just hold it and we'll dance while we hold it even right like if that is the like the as far as we can weaponize this thing without actual outright bloodshed breaking out. I think that's, I think that's an interesting tactic to like. Well, and I think, you know, it, it, it also plays well with a lot of philosophy on community organizing, right? And Solinsky's tactics where you want to do things that your people enjoy, because what's going to happen is the state is going to have to make a decision. Do we try to disrupt this and risk the backlash of making them the sympathetic part of this dynamic? Right. And so that's where when the police use violence, a lot of protest movements actually grow after that. Um, do we try to let this just kind of play out on its own and it's just going to die off its own energy, which quite frankly, most movements do peter out on their own if you leave them alone. 
Um, and so they're in a position of, you know, they have to decide what are they going to do. And so the problem is that the question is, do we think these Puerto Ricans are going to run out of steam partying in the streets? The answer is clearly no. Right? No, this could go on for a long time if it's a big party. And so they know that, right? And so that's what I think, you know, it's like, listen, they're turning this movement into the best party on the planet right now. Do we think people will stop coming? No, man, you got to resign. Like, this is not no. Yeah, no, I, there's the expression that I've heard, si se calla, cantor se calla la vida. If the singer stops, life stops. Right. And I guess in this case, maybe it's like, si, I don't know, si se, si se calla el bailador. If, mm-hmm. I don't know, but like the, the dance is not shutting up. But right. Yeah, yeah there's Emma Goldman from the anarchist traditions, right? That like, if there's no dancing in a revolution, I don't want to be a part of it. And this is the flip yeah. side, right? It's like, what if dancing is the whole revolution? Who wants to be a part Edit, of it? Right. Right. What if like, the revolution? <laughs> so, so I think, you know, it's not just, you know, I laugh just because reggaeton has a particular place in my heart, but like, it was a signal that not only are these protests going to continue, they're escalating, they're becoming cultural moments, people want to be a part of them, it is only getting bigger. And so when that is the real situation with the state, you know, they got to make an honest decision. And so while I think, you know, storming the Citadel, so to speak, um, is, a, is a different thing now, you know, the government is still the same ho- type of house of cards that it's, it's rest on really faulty foundations. And so that's where exposing, you know, tweets, for instance, or whatever, uh, can, can, you know, burn down the door of the Citadel for us, right? Because that, that was something that, you know, you couldn't do 100 years ago or 200 years ago. It's like, oh, I declared the king said X, Y, and Z, right? It just it wouldn't have been the same thing. And so now the way we mobilize and where the seat of the Citadel really is, you know, it might even be more of an ephemeral intellectual spot now that the the throne sort of sits on um, than otherwise, because in Puerto Rico, right? Like the dude was in La Fortaleza, but he was surrounded. So did we really have to knock the door down? You know, like probably not. We just had to, you know, isolate him to the point where everybody else just knew the game was up and he had to give up. And he did. You know, this was, it was encouraging to me, and I guess like now we're about an hour and change into this conversation, so we're gonna I'll, I'll bring it around here. Um, mm. And there's like two last points I want to put on the table for you. Um, well, what was encouraging about this for me, and I like I guess I've had a political optim or political pessimism. I, the listeners on this damn podcast know about my pessimism. I guess <laughs> at this point, uh, and I guess our whole podcast has a pessimistic slant, um, but. This protest encouraged me because it actually showed me that, like, it is possible for people to hold these leaders accountable in these ways. Because right now, every other day, I see politicians lying to people to their face. Or, like, in Virginia's case with their governor, when he gets exposed for his KKK pictures in his yearbook or whatever, he just wrote it out. And about a month went by, and because so many other people in that scandal in Virginia were also involved... Like, it's like as if the, the Virginia Democratic Party just kind of threw their hands up and was like, screw it, forget it. And the people forgot and it blew over. And it's like, well, damn, right? Yeah. And in this case, no, the people didn't forget and blow over. And, and, and so I was encouraged by that. And I wanted to now pivot to thinking about what is changing maybe and like thinking about the U.S. empire and like the core of the empire centered in D.C. and the, the colonial margins mm-hmm. and 
Hawaii over the last couple of weeks has also been going through protests against yep. the installation of a telescope on the top of Mount Akea. And there are plenty of indigenous Hawaiians who hold and maintain that Hawaii is a colony of the United States that just had more hails there who were able to like swing it towards a statehood, you know, following Pearl Harbor. But other than that, like the, 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 the relationship the, the, from the indigenous perspective is no different than for Puerto Ricans. And, and it took place, you know, Puerto Rico, or at least Hawaii. And the, there are Puerto Rican communities in Hawaii today. Our boy Bruno Mars is descended from one of these because you, the U.S. was sending Puerto Rican pineapple workers to go work the Dole plantations in Hawaii, right? So, like, there's a very literal colonial labor connection between these. And, like, so watching Puerto Ricans... And Hawaiians have these big street, and in Hawaii's case, mountaintop protests. Um, to me, just makes me think like there's something interesting afoot in these like U.S. colonial imperial margins, where mm-hmm. maybe in the 20th century, the U.S. could keep enough of a facade going that this thing never broke out, like the scale of it never broke out large enough into these kinds of demonstrations. But more and more people are taking back to the streets again in the, in these mass ways. And, and like there's the, this moment, as much as there's a fascist global kind of contraction happening against neoliberal financial markets and, and decisions that have been going on as far as global currency and credit markets over the last couple decades. But there's the other side of that is like a, a rejuvenation of people's like protest spirits. And like, mm-hmm. if we're keeping count, we're, you know, I'm counting this as like, this is one, maybe Hawaii. I don't know what's going on, how it's going to play out, but maybe we're starting to win on the ground again. Um, at least that's the way I'm going to think about it right now. And I think it's important for activists to take time and people who pay attention to these struggles to like, Celebrate the moments that you get to catch your breath. Right. Uh, because it's not over, right? Like, as you were saying, tomorrow we'll see if Ricky Rosario right. actually resigns or not. Well, and I think, you know, the interconnectivity of the world at this point in time is different than it's ever been before, right? So, like I said, I could take my cell phone and put all of my friends and family in Connecticut at a front seat to what the police were doing. And so that is different, right? Like, the link between the diaspora, the folks on the island, so the diaspora folks that don't know is the group of people that live outside of their homeland. Um, and so there are 5 million Puerto Ricans that live outside of their homeland and only 3.5 on the island, so actually more outside. And, and then all of their networks, right? All of the folks that went to high school with Puerto Ricans, right? And so how quickly we can share information, but also inspiration, is dramatically different now, right? We saw during Occupy Wall Street, that was another sort of um, the people lurching forward, right, in a real big way where it was just like spontaneous organization. And so uh, I have no doubt that folks that are involved in both protests, you know, I'm sure there were occupiers involved in Puerto Rico's protests. Um, And, you know, so that is, is changing how protests can happen, right? Like as we see it happen in China and we see it happen in uh, Russia, right? With like... um, uh, what's their pussy riot, right? So like there's, 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 you know, the, the ability to deal with cynicism through modern day examples of victory 
is a tool that even I, as an activist 10 years ago, didn't feel I had to that capacity. Um, and so even now, you know, I, in a lot of ways, have, you know, become a very, I don't know, millennial type organizer. I put down the flag and made myself into a camera, right? And I still, to this day, think that that's the best use of my time, especially in those spaces and here, um, is be able to share with the rest of the world. Now, the question is, what does the diaspora do with it? What do they do with that information? How does it change our, our relationships here? How do we address our own institutional problems here? Like we have a civic sector in the United States of Puerto Ricans that has done absolutely nothing on this issue at all, right? And I have some personal interactions with lots of people that they have been more of a hindrance and obstructionist to Puerto Rican movements here than they've been supportive. And we have to understand that those organizations uh, that have... People, you know, whether it's universities, whether it's like the Hispanic Federation, have direct links to the corruption on the island, right? Like, it's not to think that, like, in Congress, right, in our current Congress, is corrupt on its own without even Puerto Rico involved. And so there is lots of corruption that comes back here. So what does the diaspora do with it, right? And so I am also seeing a lot of folks rejecting the nonprofit model of organizing, rejecting the need to ask gatekeepers for permission and just doing what we got to do and getting out there. And so I do see that within the younger Puerto Ricans, you know, and, and I think the older Puerto Ricans are taking inspiration and are kind of like, finally, you know, we, we were figuring this shit out. Um, but to see even here stateside, you know, rallies were with hundreds and hundreds of Puerto Ricans in small towns were happening on a regular basis. So the networks that were formed after Hurricane Maria, when it came to providing supplies and resources and, and figuring out the politics, right? You know, that happened then and we were able to work through some of that now. So when this happened, those networks were already there. The people already knew each other. We knew who to trust and not trust. And so the communication now is just like so different, right? Like I never feel like I have to ask anybody for permission to organize where a few years ago, I would have gotten phone calls from people that were like, hey, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. Now they're just like, I'm going to stay out of his way because the the people that mobilize now have much, you know, lower tolerance for lies, you know, much lower to- tolerance for saying you have to wait, uh, much lower tolerance for, you know, letting other folks be the decision makers. And so that I do feel is different now um, than it was before. And it's a question of how do we escalate, right? Like they got rid of Ricky and they're going to, to step two. And so we helped get rid of Ricky, but what is our step two? And that is what we're, I think, figuring out now as a movement here in the States. I think, right. And I think this is a, this is a good spot to, to maybe like not end this, com- end our time now, but to hold this open <laughs> as a kind of a... Uh, yeah, and we'll come back with, you know, episode two, right. the diaspora helps out. <laughs> right. This is where we pause and we hold it open for the listeners right? Right. to like, you got to, in some way, like figure out how you relate to this and like what, where you can enter in at, because... I, you mentioned the Hurricane Maria, um, you know, as a way of organizing networks. Um, and like, mm-hmm. even I was in Oregon after that happened. And I remember talking to you about this as well. But, you know, we're, we're not anywhere near each other. And mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. Boricuas in Oregon, I was surprised and almost like shocked by how like easy it, like the local <laughs> media was able to bring in a place that you would not think they were Puerto Ricans. <laughs> A, a good number of Puerto Ricans together really quickly. And it was, uh, it was interesting to see that happen. Um, even like there is no place that's far away in, you know, in, right. in this, you know, at least we have these technologies that they, they're, they're there already and we can do with them something. It's going to be used in other ways by the powers that be too. So 
Um, the Puerto Rican Agenda is a national organization. Global. This is true. Global, because there's two nations, at least two nations, but in Cain and the United States. Yeah, and so, yeah, the National Puerto Rican Agenda is a national organization that is comprised of, you know, state chapters like the one I'm a part of, but also other nonprofit organizations. Um, and, you know, it, again, it was formed more before the hurricane for economic reasons and then just kind of dramatically changed afterwards. And now, you know, and, and I will say that there are, differences of opinion within that board as well. I am, of course, you know, one of the younger ones on that board. Um, but, you know, we have folks all over the place and, you know, we've held a number of mass uh, assemblies, right? And so I was elected at an assembly in Philadelphia uh, a year ago now. Yeah, it was last July um, by a number of folks, as were other members. And so we are moving to organize folks all over the place. And so, you know, I, I will say, though, that is where I got to start to feel the generational differences in approach, in tone, and you know, uh, respectability, politics, all of that, and so we are dealing with those issues. But you know, here in Connecticut, we're going to have a big forum on August twenty fourth um, about the economic situation. But you know, the thing with Puerto Ricans, right, is like they're everywhere. Wave the flag, show people what's up, whether it's the white and black one or the red, white, and blue one. Making sure Puerto Ricans in your area know. I happen to live in a place that has a lot of Puerto Ricans. Uh, but there was an interesting, like, comedic clip I saw online, you know, from one of the Tonight Shows that this lady was just banging her pot at the police. at the yeah, time, you know, oh, so, yes. you know, and, and the punchline is, like, if you have a pot, bang it, right? And I think that's the attitude I'm feeling that I love so much about Puerto Ricans right now is that, like, you know, if there's two of us, we're banging two pots. And that's our approach. Right? The hashtag Casarola girl. <laughs> and, and casserola meaning pan and yeah she's right. out there just ba- she was giving me yeah. life I was watching these protests and I was like yes like it's so great yeah you know your listeners with right it's like Puerto Ricans just need to get together even if it's one person waving a flag that inspires people that sees that even if it's two people banging some pots on a corner that inspires people and we're definitely in that moment where every time we see it you know we shout the web out because we were all on the same page and that was the my friend yeah yeah Jason so so yeah that's where I think we're at now right like every Puerto Rican that has a bot pot should be banging it one way or another whether that's digital on social media whether that's physically whether that's writing new songs and new music and new culture whatever it is you know because even like bad bunny and resident that came out with a protest song titled apilando los cuchillos which is sharpening the knives <laughs> right <laughs> a very aggressive title uh for the moment and so you know now is the time folks said if you're not sure how to get involved man just do something just share something speak up bang your pots and pans because uh, we need everybody in the fight in order to really get justice for Puerto Rico. For Puerto Rican, as you mentioned before. <laughs> well, Jason Ortiz, thank you for uh, thank you for banging your pot on our podcast today. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely, Jason Ortiz, thank you so much. The Connecticut, Connecticut Puerto Rican Agenda and the tell me the minority cannabis business coalition. Vice President of the Minority Cannabis Business Association. You can check out ConnecticutPuertoRicanAgenda.org or MinorityCannabis.org and you get to see all of our wonderful work. And just like a, a longtime uh, movement planner, thinker, organizer, you know, and I, I met you in movements and I appreciate that 
you know, you're still out here in movements. Uh, so, hasta la victoria siempre. Gracias. Se levanta, Puerto Rico se levanta. Again, a big thank you to Jason Ortiz of the Puerto Rican Agenda, Connecticut Puerto Rican Agenda, grassroots organizer, uh, movement, um, you know, movement thinker, and you know, thinking about social change and um, and people that I know that I've known to have been out in these moments for a long time. You start to become. Uh, knowledgeable on just the idea of protest and, and, and popular demonstrations and, and uprisings and like different methods and tactics. And I think um, those are really useful kinds of embodied encyclopedias to have around um, in these protest times, because as much as you need to innovate and think things through, um, it's really important in these movements to have people who have been around, who have seen a couple things already and who can share some of the things that they've learned about how to deal with police and about how to mobilize um, in the street and use social media platforms to the advantage of the people um, and not the power. So um, I appreciated the conversation that we had and I look forward to having more of them um, about cannabis and about maybe drug war activism and that kind of movements. Um, I, I don't believe we've had those kinds of conversations on this podcast extensively. So there's a lot more that we can continue to cover as we, we go forward. Um, there are some other episodes that are being planned and worked out. Other, uh, I want to talk about some things that have been going on in New York City and um, the DA election in Queens. Um, with an activist there and housing, um, housing justice activism in New York City and talk about the Amazon deal. Um, so uh, this is a, all a, a, not a segue maybe, but it's a setup to say thank you to our Patreons because I have this brand new snowball microphone that I'm looking at here in front of my face, um, Bluetooth microphone that I'm recording on, which is Due to the Patreons and the support that you you send to this podcast, and so we're able to do more and have more um, content and produce better quality episodes for you all. Um, and I appreciate that. And so I have this like recording studio now set up in my house, and I want to I want to make sure that I'm taking advantage. Uh, not taking advantage. I want to make sure that I am doing justice to the 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 gifts that the patreons have given and so you're going to be getting a lot more content um around some of these mobilizations especially as i think we're moving into 2020 there's a lot of grassroots activism that can take place during presidential election seasons that those issues are always already um there in the background but because the heightened attunement to political rhetoric which we've talked about recently um, in our episode on um, the Democratic primaries, I think in these moments you get a chance to say things in certain ways or you get certain platforms to make certain statements about the nature of the American political state that people will listen to you maybe just a little bit more now or they'll look at it a little bit differently. And so I think this podcast um, and the Epistemic Unruly in a Stream, which we have been thinking and positioning 
um, within the Trump um, era as one of the many channels and like mechanisms and nodes of any kind of form of potential uh, for resistance or some kind of supplanting that might be possible, right? Even if, like Jason was talking about, if this is a digital version of banging a pot, then we're going to bang our pots here at Always Already as loudly as we possibly can. Um, and so keep a lookout for the, the episodes that are going to be starting to come down the pike as we are working um, to, to start to build our fall schedule out. And um, so there are some interesting things in the work, both for epistemic unruliness and at the chat discussion episodes or the, excuse me, the book discussion episodes. So I want to leave you on a, I think after that conversation, it was a, an upbeat, optimistic conversation. And so I want to leave you on that kind of a note. Um, so what you're listening to here as I bring it up is the sound of the coqui frog um, in Puerto Rico. And the coqui is a, na- a nocturnal frog, tiny, maybe no bigger than you know, like, uh, oh boy, like a, a nine volt battery or something. That's a weird thing. Uh, maybe like a mat, like a lighter, right? Tiny little things, but they are quite noisy, but their noise um, is not disruptive per se, but it has this like sentimental attachment for Puerto Ricans. Um, and so um, I sign off to you all here. As if I'm standing in the, the middle of the, the selva in El Jonque, in Borinquen. I wish you all an always already day. Ciao. As always, for joining us on another episode of the Always Ready Podcast, which is created by Rachel Brown, James Kyloney Jr., Emily Crandall, Citizar, B. Lee Altman, and John McMahon. Visit our website, alwaysreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Email us text you'd like us to discuss advice, questions, answer, and dreams to analyze to alwaysreadypodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at alwaysreadyon. Like us on Facebook. Uh, subscribe to us in your RSS podcast reader feeder of your choice. Leave us a review while you're there. Do all of that. Um, fun, wonderful things. And if uh, you are interested, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash podcast. as you heard from James. Uh, at the moment, he got a new microphone, and uh, I believe the next thing is to get uh, Rachel and Sid a new microphone, um, so that should be very exciting. We'd like to thank our current patrons who have made this new microphone situation happen. In the Always Already Circle of Trust, we'd like to thank David, Stephanie, Laura, Leonte, Baklan, Drati, Diane, Ariel, Kristen, Catherine, and Matthew. In the uh, front of the podcast category, we'd like to thank Natalie, Ian, Thomas, Theory Talk, and Rachel. We'd also like to thank Guava, who has not claimed a reward in Patreon. Thank you, always already, to our friend, uh, Bad Infinity, front of the podcast, Bad Infinity, for their song, Post Digital, which you heard several points throughout the episode. Thank you to B for their cover of Landfly, which you're listening to right now. Until next time, which probably will be next week, about a week, give or take, have an always already day.